Father God, I in different seasons of my life have found 1 John 5-10 through 10 to be a scary text asking me to come and find condemnation for areas of my life that still are far from your spirit, far from walking in the light. I found it as oppressive, inability to walk in the light. But Lord, I pray for us in this room this morning to see not your invitation for condemnation, but your invitation for continued growth and life and being in the light. Not by being perfect, but by declaring that which you have saved us out of. Declaring strongholds that still exist maybe in us personally, maybe in our culture at large. And as we are faithful to bring to light that which still enslaves us, you break its power. Lord, we have deep strongholds in our world and our culture in this time, particularly in this, this topic of justice and reconciliation. Lord, I pray for you to break those strongholds in this room today. Lord, I pray for you to give us joy to come before you. And Lord, I pray ultimately that this would be, this whole series, but, but particularly this morning, would be protected by your Spirit so that we might experience deep unity in this moment and not division. Both are possible. Both are on the table. The enemy comes to divide. You've come so that we might be one, so that like you and the Father are one. We find unity like that. And so, Lord, I pray for your spirit to do that. It's what you've said you've come to do. So, uh, Lord, I just release any burden for me to try to have to do that and I give it all to you. Let your spirit work powerfully in this room. To your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started a series, uh, a formation series, in justice and reconciliation. And we're talking reconciliation. We realize justice and reconciliation are both big terms. There's a lot that we could talk about. So in purpose to focus our series, we said, hey, we're going to specifically be talking about reconciliation, specifically racial and ethnic reconciliation in our country and in our church mainly because this is a really huge part of justice for us in this time and this place. And what we laid out last week, that the reason we want to talk about this is not because we want to get away from the gospel, but because this is intrinsically bound to the gospel. That Ephesians 2 is going to show clearly that the most clear display of the gospel of Paul writing to believers and saying, hey, you have been saved by grace through your faith, not of your own works, so that no one can boast that powerful depiction of the gospel is immediately followed by, so now be reconciled to the Gentile and the Jew alike. And so he takes as a moment of, hey, here is a vision of God and humanity being reconciled. This is how God and a person have a person's debt fully forgiven, not by their work so that they might not boast, but by God's work, his rich abounding grace and mercy that he gives to you by no... no uh, no benefit of your own, and, and, and that ultimately you are forgiven not because you've worked hard, but because Jesus has fully paid for your debt on a cross. But like we said last week, the cross is vertical in nature, connecting God and man, but it's also horizontal in nature. And that's why Paul then effortlessly goes on 
to the rest of the chapter where he says, hey, now you Jews and Gentiles, people who have been deeply separated, I'm breaking down the wall of hostility that exists between you. I have no hostility towards you with all the record you have against me. And so out of an abounding forgiveness and grace that I give you, I want you now that you're so overflowed with grace that you couldn't possibly hold on to all of it yourself, dispense it onto those who have offended in a broken relationship with you. And that's not just for people that hurt us, though that's true. But it's true for people groups, for economic divides, for racial divides, for areas that we find ourselves very much so in this time and place with walls of hostility in between. And because the gospel does that, Ephesians 2 last week said that there is a natural making of a new mankind, Paul says. And that word new, he said, was like not just like the latest, but like novel, never seen anything like this before. And that's exactly what the first century church was. It was taking people who had years and years and years of hatred and firings back and forth and inability to be in relationship with one another and made them brothers and sisters. It didn't relativize away their ethnicity, their background, but all of a sudden it put it in proper context. Hey, the deepest thing about you is that you are fueled and sustained and forgiven and redeemed by the love of God. And so is your brothers and sisters who are now from a multi-ethnic nation, a multi-ethnic family. And so then as it did that, people just saw the church and didn't have a category for it. And that's why you see in Antioch, they start calling people Christians, and they do it for the first time there. And many commentators have posited maybe the reason that they start calling people Christians is because they couldn't figure out what ethnicity to call them. Because in Antioch, you had one man called Niger, meaning black. You had a man from Libya. You had Jews. And people walked in and saw this room of people from every part of the globe and every nation, and they weren't just all together with their group, but they had formed this new group now with a blended identity because of the gospel. And they said, like, well, we can't, call them, uh, we can't call them Jews. We can't call them Libyans. We just ultimately have to call them Christians because that's the most unifying thing about them. And so the first century church was by normative multi-ethnic and unified. Which is why we have to ask the question, how did we get here now? Whereas it has long been stated, as we said last week, Sunday morning is one of the more segregated hours of the week. In fact, the most segregated hours of the week, some would say. Racial tensions are at a boiling point, and not just nationally, like locally, you can feel this to be true. You walk into the church, and you think, man, maybe this is where it'll be different, but there's no mind-blowing new reality. Again, last week we said, one of my fears, one of our fears as a pastoral team and as a church is just people would walk in and be like, well, this isn't mind-blowing. This, this makes sense. This doesn't take the gospel. This is, this is just how naturally things would be if there was no reconciling between people groups and, and deep divides and there were no walls of hostility broken down. And so I want to take some time this morning to address the walls of hostility that have been built for years of history nationally in the city and in the church. As I do that, 
I want to reset forward for us a few of the disclaimers that I had in last week's sermon. One of them, I'm not going to preach this perfectly. And I am asking for the Spirit to edit in what, which would be glorifying and unifying and would be freeing today, and to edit out that which would bring disunity, that which would bring confusion, that which would bring further hurt. But I recognize as a feeble human being, I know that I might be imperfect in the execution of this. Second disclaimer I want to bring forward. Believe it or not, this has no intention of bringing further toxic shame into this issue. That often we come and we are walking through and rehearsing through years of angst and pain and racial hostility and we kind of know the cue. It's just like it's supposed to just stir up more toxic guilt and shame and that's leave no answers and, and that's pretty much all that we do here is just try to get more in touch with pain and hurt. And I would again remind us that the beauty of the gospel is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that isn't just as saying, okay, there's nothing, everything that was behind me is in the past, so I move on from it. And then there's that moment where Paul says, I forget everything that was in the past, and I press on, pushing ahead. And people have taken that to mean, like, okay, you just kind of forget anything that was in your past, and you just segment it away. And, and, and Paul doesn't do that. You see him often in touch with the fact that he says, hey, I persecuted the church. I was hostile. You see his testimony regularly, giving glory to God by showing exactly that which he has been saved out of personally and corporately, his people. And so this morning is not an opportunity to just stir up some toxic guilt and shame like that's going to help anything. This morning is an opportunity for us to joyfully receive the gift of proclaiming what God has saved us out of and what he's still saving our culture and ourselves because we are products of our culture out of. So none of this is for condemnation. None of this is for shame. This is for ultimately deeper joy in a gospel that saves broken people where they're at. And they get to proclaim the glories of which they have been saved from by a gracious and merciful God. So, ultimately, uh, let's begin our, uh, our walking through uh, just looking at a bit of national history. Um, there's a lot, I'm sure, just being born and raised in America that we're familiar when it comes to the racial divide nationally, of course, speaking mainly of slavery um, and efforts since that time. I want to start here because I think this is something that doesn't get brought up much and I think it's a good place to start. America is built by people fleeing persecution. If you think about whether it's the prisoners who land in Georgia, the Irish coming after the, uh, the potato famine and persecution from England, the Catholics in Maryland, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, Puritans and Baptists in the Northeast, people came to America because they were oppressed and persecuted. That's important for us to note about our history. Because persecution doesn't come from nowhere. 
often when you find a people group that has built persecution into its history, it's often because they too came from a situation that they were persecuted. Look at the Jews. The most persecuted people arguably throughout the history of the world. And what do they do? Paul talks about. He says in Philippians, he talks about all the things his identity before he was in Christ. He said before he was in Christ, though I myself had reason for confidence in the flesh also, the flesh being his unredeemed nature. If anyone else thinks he has reason and confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His identity pre-Christ was in practicing his ethnicity and his religious practice. He was one of God's chosen people and had followed the rules of his culture from the time he was an infant and had joined the elite of his people and pride in being set apart by God, holier than the rest, sustained the Jewish people and it gave them any threat to their identity had to be crushed. And so they began to press out and persecute anyone that would try to push into their identity. I mean, the wall of hostility that's mentioned in Ephesians 2 wasn't just a metaphor. It spoke of an actual wall that was built around the temple. It was built to block off the court of the Gentiles. Because, see, during the time of the Jews worshiping their God, pre-Jesus, and even post-Jesus, there was a time where people would come to the temple that were not Jews, that said, hey, for whatever reason, God is making a multi-ethnic family right now, and he has brought non-Jews, some Gentiles, to come worship at the temple of Yahweh, our God. And as they came, the Jews said, okay, we understand that God's going to bless all nations, and so you can come, but you have to stay in the outermost court. That's the court of the Gentiles. And there was a literal wall that we found. We've dug out archaeologically, and we found the wall, and inscribed into the wall says, Gentiles pass this wall by threat of their own death. There is a literal wall of hostility and a persecution of Jews towards non-Jews. Why? Because they were a persecuted people and persecuted people persecute people. Hurt people hurt people. That's true individually and that's true corporately. And so, just pointing out the fact that Colonies came from persecution. They were, came to this country and immediately affected by disease. They had high demands and taxes put on them by the countries that they came from, saying, well, wow, you have all this land, now you need to reproduce all this economically for us. And it's no wonder they wrote, or it's, sorry, it's no wonder that when they found native people groups, there was first a rush to convert them, but not to bring them into a family, but to subjugate them and push them out of the land because they stood in between there was colonists' ability to provide all of the resources and have all the land they needed to provide for the taxes and, and benefit profitly or profit for themselves. It's no wonder they wrote a Declaration of Independence that declared all men equal, giving inalienable rights to all people, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But on the same document, they said, but the savages, the natives of this land, they don't get this. Again, it was fear... It's persecution that then drives and pushes itself forward. It's no wonder that Europe starts shipping Africans to the Americas along with increased demands of cash crops 
making the only way to satisfy taxes and make profits is by having free labor that eventually the colonists take the most vulnerable people and make them slaves. Now see this, none of this is to make an excuse for anything. It's merely showing that if we're not careful, we can often look at persecution and be like, well, that's just this dark, twisted nature. And the fact is that history has a way of passing persecution forward. Which is exactly why we want to take some time bringing to light some of the persecution that our country has entered into the world so that we might remove its power from continuing to make continual anger, continual walls bigger and bigger. And so, in this place where we create, we gather refugees of oppression, they then look around and, and are probably understandably fearful of others, fearful of uh, those coming in, and so they create in that time what had previously been an ethnicity, they, pre they create the construct of race. See, the way that we talk about race was actually not a concept really before the Americas were born. Before then you had ethnicities because in Europe you're German or you're French or you're Polish and, and yes, you might be variation of a color but ultimately your ethnicity, your people group is mainly what, what holds you and, and, and defines you. But here you come with many different people from many different nationalities, however, generally sharing a baseline of culture and then encountering people that have a very different culture and now the most common denominator is no longer just your ethnicity, but it's now becoming race. And you create, the, in the creation of this racial divide becomes the creation of a different level of the image of God being present in different ethnicities and races. Or at least the appearance or thought of it. And of course, ultimately, what this enables is the pushing of native peoples out of lands and, and exterminating them, or at least the attempt to do so, and also the slave trade. I mean, how else can a nation built in Christian principles, built in the sense that we are all created equal in the Imago Dei, be able to perform the atrocities that we see in early American history? It's ultimately because they have to create a construct that says there is a better than and a lesser than. And they're no different than any other oppressed people group of all time. I don't look back and say this is uh, uniquely twisted and dark. This is true, and this is capable of you and me. Every part of us, every one of us that has been hurt knows that we have the ability to push hurt into the world. Again, not an excuse. Just trying to look at it in a holistic way. And so... I, the horrifying history of slavery is well discussed other places. We don't have the space or time to go into that. I'd like to more go forward from what happened after slavery because here's our point of bringing in 1 John 5 through 10 today is that in the, de the destruction of the institution of slavery after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, Americans and our culture have an opportunity to walk in the light as God is in the light, and be cleansed of sin. And ultimately, though the institution is destroyed, the sin is never fully confessed. It's never fully brought to light. And because of that, you see it continue to have walls of hostility and cycles of these walls being built and rebuilt throughout history. 
And so to do this, I actually now want to jump over to our local history of Indiana, um, mainly because often it can be divided up of, hey, this is a southern thing. This is the southern states. This is where, uh, where race and slavery still have had a deeper stronghold. But Indiana was a free state, and we don't have that problem here. The problem is, is that Indiana, in 1951, wrote their second constitution in which they forbade the ability for anybody, any person of color to settle in the state. That didn't come off the books until the 14th Amendment made it illegal. And when it did, Indiana government wrote in the ability to create and enforce separate schools. Which is interesting because Indiana in 1877 desegregated schools along with much of the North. However, in 1927, by building Christmas attics under influence of the Klan at that time, Indianapolis becomes the only U.S. city to actually resegregate schools. And Christmas Attics is founded and it becomes a school where all African Americans are then attending. Um, and that remains true again from 1927 through uh, 1971, even though uh, it, nationally this became illegal in the 50s in Brown versus the Board of Education. They found after 20 years of that, every zoning decision by the school board continued to enforce segregation more implicitly. And then we have housing. Um, in World War II, after World War II, Americans began to move uh, out of the cities and create suburbs. And two things happened at that point. One, there was something that uh, made it difficult, if not impossible, for African Americans to be able to get housing loans. As at the same time, there was nationwide mandates in real estate brokerages to, or to, in real estate licensing to say you may not sell a home to an African American. And so African Americans were blocked from purchasing and owning homes and when most Americans did after World War II and were mainly uh, found themselves consolidated in certain pockets of the city. In Indianapolis, there was about three one actually on the east side, but the largest one was on the west side of downtown where part of the campus of IUPUI sits next to Christmas Attucks High School. And in that time, uh, after a while, the African Americans continued to be consolidated in that area on the west side. Eventually, the city wanted to do revitalization to the city, and they wanted to extend IUPUI's campus. By doing so, they pushed people out of their homes, offering no... Um, resources to find new housing. Because of all of this, not only in our city but nationwide, there's been a regular cycle now of African Americans not being able to build the same amount of house equity. If you know how most people's value is, is found, your value is in your house equity. It's about two-thirds of the, of the average person's net wealth is found there. The problem is, is when you don't have uh, the ability to build that equity, um, you get now where the average African-American has 10% of the wealth that an average European-American has, simply by the inability to purchase and own a home. And then there's a lot of different places we could go, but I'll just lastly uh, focus on another piece that has affected uh, not just Indianapolis, but all our cities, is the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s. Over a course of 25 years, our prison population went from 350,000 to 2.3 million. And 
even though that had an effect on all Americans, it unfortunately again emphasized an African-American population because it put a specific emphasis in the language on crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, crack cocaine being more prevalent in uh, black communities and powder cocaine being more prevalent in white communities. And even though studies suggest no drug, uh, that drug use is just as prevalent or more so in, uh, across other races, uh, now in that 2.3 million incarcerated, which of course has probably continued to grow, but these are just more recent figures, one in 14 black men find themselves behind bars at the same time. One in 106 white men are, are behind bars. And ultimately, while there's a lot of complexities to all this history, I'm realizing that there's a lot of nuance, a lot of things that go into this. This has continued to create fatherless families. And then one in 14 black men excluded from government programs and it, having to mark that they've had a felony on their record, which makes it difficult to find work. Again, it's affected all Americans who have been incarcerated. This is an issue across races, but it's just improportionally, disproportionately affected the African-American community. Again, why do I bring up any of this? Not for the sake to deepen condemnation of shame, but a recognition of there is a reason why we find ourselves in a deep level of distrust amongst African-Americans and European-Americans right now in our country. And we don't want to just grovel or just sit in these things and beat up and continue to beat down, but rather recognize the good news is that Paul wrote Ephesians 2. Paul was the one who wrote, hey, let's break down that Jesus and his cross has broken down the wall of hostility. When you look at all of Paul's history, he had his entire life done all that he could to build that wall of hostility. I mean, you see Paul, again, in, in Philippians, emphasizing the fact that of his zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. You see in the first Christian martyr in Stephen, Paul is the one who is sitting over that and casting his vote for those who are are, uh, uh, the, for Stephen to be killed. In fact, in Paul's testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he just blatantly declares to everyone and to Agrippa before God to give him glory, his history, when he says this. He says, I consider myself fortunate that as I before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, and according to the strictest party of our religion, that I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope uh, and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain in the earnest worship night and day. And for, this I, uh, and for this hope I am accursed by the Jews, O King. Why, it is thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead... I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus on Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul's testimony in which he attempts to convert King Agrippa to Christianity. He says, hey, do you want to know how good God is? He took me 
who was the builder of the wall of hostility. And now he's made me one who's a part of, with the cross, breaking down the wall of hostility. In fact, the last time Paul goes to prison is most likely for him taking his friend Trophimus into the temple a Gentile past the wall of hostility because he said, hey, Jesus has broken this down and though I helped build it, I'm now with Jesus breaking it down. And what is the first step to breaking it down? It's just having the joyful opportunity to just say, this is true. And in that, it doesn't mean condemning our country, our city, or our ethnicity. Because here's what's also true. The left, in this issue, the left in this side has said, hey, you can't love a country or a city or a person that is evil. If you love somebody or something that's evil, that makes you evil too. That's why if somebody all of a sudden comes out and they have allegations come out against them, you have to get away. And the right has made this conversation impossible because they said, if you truly love something, you don't point out those things. Where Jesus says in the Gospel, hey, you're evil. That's the first bit of the Gospel in Ephesians 2. Hey, look how messed up and jacked up you are. But God, being rich in mercy, is redeeming you. So come and step into the light as He is in the light. Not because you have to fear any condemnation, because now you will have no condemnation. And now as you bring it out to the light and become one who is able to tell our story of our country, of our city, of our own backgrounds of maybe even ways where we find ourselves still very much so struggling with personal attitudes that are very much so baked into us through culture. I mean, there's a sense of saying like, oh man, no, like we're, we're now, we're educated, we're woke, we're beyond this. This is very much so in the bones of our lives. I'm, not, I'm guessing many of us can find ways that we have maybe unknowingly found ourselves just in the system that we have here. Because it is a very systemic thing. Racism is something that has been built very intentionally, many decisions over a course of many years. And the way it will be destroyed is by first declaring that it's true and then in the same amount of time making decision and decision and decision again to break it down these walls of hostilities that divide. And so it doesn't make us evil to love America. It doesn't make us evil to love Indianapolis. It doesn't make us evil. Jesus, too, loved Jerusalem. I love the moment where you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I have it somewhere in my notes if I can find it. Yeah, he says in Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. He's saying, hey, you've got a really broken history, Jerusalem, and I love you. And we can still rejoice in all the goodness that is in America, that is in Indianapolis, that is in our own backgrounds in the same time, say, being redeemed by us bringing forward into the light that which is still broken in its history. And so I know it's exhausting to talk about this, and we've had these conversations and, and all these sessions, and these often get used to bludgeon and people beat people down or just gather people for political cause. And I don't want to speak in any of those ways. I want to speak as Paul did. Acknowledging that our past brings glory to God because it highlights the redeeming, transforming work of God in our lives. And if we don't learn to tell the truth about where we come from, ultimately we're not loving. It's not a loving thing to do. We, 
we're ashamed and we deny the opportunity for God's transforming work to bring him glory. And so now, as an act of both us being unified together and just a regular act of coming forward to the cross, which reconciles us to God, simultaneously reconciling to others, we participate in the act of communion. We focus on this each week because, again, it is a reminder of the body and the blood broken for us to cleanse us of all sin. That's true of our individual identities. That's true of our corporate identities. And as we are cleansed by that, and and as we have been cleansed by that through the cross, we are regularly coming together to be reminded to band together under the unifying power of the cross in the act of communion. Let me say a few more things. First of all, just setting up in a moment when we pray, there'll be communion rooms around the room, gluten-free up here. And oh, also this, there's a prayer team that is going to be, is actively gathering. We have a group, team of people that have just said, hey, we want to be actively praying uh, during our services. It was just as we've approached this sermon series, they realized, man, we need to be, be praying during every single one of our services. So now there's been just a consolidated group of people that said, hey, we're going to come and sit in the back during the services and just pray continually that the Spirit's work would be moving. So they've been praying for us this entire time right now. And then they said, hey, we're going to come out during uh, the time of communion and continue to just pray for people. This is important, I think, this week because here's the big thing we need to recognize about what we're dealing with. We've talked about a little bit about personal, but really a lot more about systemic injustice that's gone on in our country and in our city and in our world right now. But if we stop with personal and systemic and don't get to the fact that this is one of the most biggest areas of spiritual warfare in our country, then we will have not been able to root this out. This is ultimately, man, I can't tell you. Like, I've talked with a lot of you who have had crazy weeks, and I totally get what you're saying. This week, really crazy stuff has gone down, and I can't help but notice it's surrounding a week where we're going over this topic where I just, like, I've been having a ton of angst towards this sermon because I just realized there's just so much opportunity for this to be more divisive and to be more condemning, which is ultimately not what we desire, but therefore people miss the opportunity to just joyfully come together and speak the truth of what is true so that we might break down walls of hostility. But when you start trying to mess with walls of hostility, there's a ton of spiritual warfare that gets stirred up. And so I don't know where it's stirring up in the room right now, but I would just say I want to make our team available for prayer both during this time and maybe even after the gathering, uh, myself after the gathering, I'd love to pray for you as well. Um, We can't forget the fact that all this has been built systemically and there's still wrestle with even in our bones personally because ultimately there is an enemy that continues to divide and confuse and hold on to strongholds that are very much so alive and well in in our country, in our world, in our city, in our time. And so we want to make them available to pray for you. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, ultimately I pray for your spirit to be doing the work of seeing the joy of bringing to light and bringing to glory these truths that are broken and wicked in us and our lives and our city and our world and our nation. Because, no, it's not joyful that these things are true. But what is amazingly bringing you glory is your ability to 
save to break down these walls. And I believe, Lord, that you are desiring and will be breaking down these walls continually in this neighborhood. And I pray as you do, we could be a people that are breaking the bread that represents your body and, and drinking of the cup representing your blood with more and more people of our neighborhood, with more and more people of backgrounds, Lord, where maybe we would not all make sense hanging out and it would be difficult to get us all in the same room, but ultimately deeper than the, divides, the wall, dividing walls of hostility between us would be your gospel, which would be, be creating a new, mind-blowing, innovative family. And so, Lord, let us help be ones who are building trust by just simply saying, hey, these are true. And God is redeeming these. Lord, protect our unity, protect our family right now as we unify under your body and your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.